0: Today, our first text comes from Romans 5, verses 15 and 16. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And our second verse is from Galatians 4, verses 3 through 7. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba father so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through God this is the word of the Lord
1: so we're in a series that we're calling made alive and, and really what the essence of the series uh, is this, what happens when God saves someone? What happens when someone is being made alive? I mean, we're familiar with with churchiology and, and church phrases, but what's actually going on in the heart of someone who has been changed and begins to follow God? So the, the first week, we, we kind of looked at this idea of, uh, of election and calling, and so we're, there, there's a yeah, an image right there on the screen uh, of, of what's called the Ordo Salutis, which is a fancy Latin word for order of salvation. So some theologians back in the day kind of put together this, uh, kind of this order of what they saw happening systematically in the scriptures when someone became a follower of Jesus. And the reason why I want to show you this, and, and I, want to, I want our church to embrace this idea of God doing so much, is because so many times we diminish what's happening when we're made alive by God. And, and because of that, we struggle uh, with our assurance uh, of faith when, when times get tough, and we struggle whenever we're on the mission of God and we don't see the things happening that we expect to see happening. And, and so as we look at this, you, you know, kind of what we talked about two weeks ago was this idea of election and calling. We talked about how God set his love on people before the foundation of the earth, before he made anyone, that they'd be, be made alive, as, as Paul says in Colossians 2 and Ephesians 2. And we, talked, we gave this image of, of how we're all like, like blindfolded people that are running straight for hell. And how, you know, Christians are calling out the gospel to them. And then all of a sudden it's like the Holy Spirit unties the blindfold and we realize where we're headed. And we turn around and we begin to follow Jesus. That call becomes effectual in our hearts. And then last week on Easter Sunday, we talked about this idea of regeneration and, and conversion. And, and what we said in that was there's this guy, Zacchaeus, that, that was the, you know, the, the worst of all sinners that's ever walked the face of the earth. I and mean, he really was. He was. There's a category for guys like Zacchaeus. Sinners and then there's tax collectors. That was Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector. One of the, 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 the dirtiest scumbags on the face of the earth. And all of a sudden, he has this desire to see Jesus. And so he climbs up into a tree, and God's been changing his heart. And Jesus calls him down and dines with him and, and has a meal with him. And so God makes him alive because he didn't make himself alive because he was dead in his sin and His in his trespasses. And so today what we're going to be looking at is this idea of justification and adoption. Now, these are... These are, these are, justification is a legal term, adoption is a family term. What I've found is that in the fall, we have both issues, legal issues and family issues. They kind of go together sometimes, don't they? I, I can remember in my discipleship group a couple years ago, I was, uh, I had, okay, here's the deal, 316, everybody know 316, right? 85, when you're coming off 85 and you get on 316, you know what I'm talking about right there? When it goes from 70 to 55? Right? I'm, I'm traveling along, and all of a sudden, I'm just kind of moseying along, listening to my Spotify playlist, and, and then I see the blue lights show up. And this guy, this guy is literally standing out the road, and he goes like this. He, he, he doesn't even get in his car. He just flips his lights on and does this. And, and I pull over, and I begin to get frustrated with the situation because I've got this alibi, and I'm thinking, man, maybe I can get out of this thing, all right? I can get out of this. Maybe I can just kind of tell them what's going on. I'm headed to mentor students at Richards Elementary School this morning, okay? I'm trying to give back to the community. I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you, you know, the, the, the change in the speed, it was, it was just ridiculous, you know, 70 to 55. I mean, I just wasn't paying attention, officer. And he comes up to my window. I roll it down, and, and uh, he just basically says, uh, can I see your license? I said, Yeah. He comes back and he goes, here's your ticket. That's all he said to me. And I'm like, so mad. I'm like, I didn't even have a chance to talk to him. And so in my discipleship group, I've, you know, I've I found that I've actually pretty much always had an attorney in my discipleship group. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but at this point I had one. Gordon was in my discipleship group, and I said, Gordon, how can I get out of this ticket, man? I was telling him the alibi of everything that 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 had happened, and he says, hey, man, here's what you need to do. Just show up in court and contest it. And so I said, you know, that's exactly what I'm going to do, Gordon. So I put it in my calendar like, you know, a month down the road to show up at court. I get up that morning when I'm going to go to court, and I look at myself in the mirror, <laughs> and I think, I'm about to spend like three or four hours in court for something that I did, and I'm going to try to lie and say I didn't do it. Who am I kidding? I broke the law, you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm trying to get out of this in my mind, and so I didn't end up showing up. I paid the ticket and, and went on my merry way. But, you know, friends, we all have disobedience issues um we have disobedience issues that have led to legal issues that have led to family issues and relationship issues with our father in heaven and when jesus came to redeem sinners he came to deal with those he didn't come to deal with just the spiritual elements of our salvation he came to deal with the whole thing he came to save us holistically so the big idea of where we're going today is this church The enemy came to accuse and to alienate us from our father. It's important we see that. Accuse, accusation, and alienation. So you got the legal issue, you got the family issue going on there. But Jesus came to acquit us and adopt us back into God's family. So I got three points I want to make as we go through this. The first one is the dilemma the dilemma is accusation and alienation. So let's look at accusation first. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 3 where it all begins. It's, it's, it's really good to go back and look at where we've come from. So what's an accusation? An accusation is a claim that someone has done something wrong. Am I right? We can't, we can't boil it down any lower than that. It's a claim that someone's done something wrong. And at this point in the, in the narrative of creation, the enemy comes And he accuses God of doing something wrong. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3 real quick. Genesis chapter 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 5 real quick. Here's what it says. Now the serpent, now let me give you a little context. At at this point, God has created Adam and Eve and he's he's created the world, he's created everything. And then we've got Adam and Eve enjoying God in his presence. In perfect fellowship and relationship with him you know, working and enjoying the fruits of their work in the garden. And then all of a sudden, the serpent comes onto the scene. Now, the serpent was more crafty. Now, that doesn't mean that he frequented Hobby Lobby. But he was, he was crafty in the sense that he's deceptive. And I think a lot of times, we undermine the craftiness and the deceptive nature of the enemy. You know, we put this little, this little devil on our shoulder. and Guys, he's, he's far more crafty and deceptive than that. And he's really good at what he does. You know what his craft is? Keeping you from God's grace. It's what it is. So now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's the accusation. Did he say it? Is that what he actually said? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the... The fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the the tree that is in the midst of, of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, that part of the accusation was true. But the seed that was planted was this You can't trust God. Now at that point, Adam could have stepped up when he was talking to his wife and he could have said, objection, that's not true. Don't believe that lie. He could have have stood up and said that, but he didn't. And so the bait was taken. And this little voice began to say in their hearts and their heads, God cannot be trusted. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. You need to, to trust me, the enemy. You need to trust yourself. God is holding out on you. So you know the story, Adam and Eve took the bait, and because of their disobedience, we have what the world has become today. We have the sinful fallen condition. Now, if you're like anything like me, like my flesh, here's what it says. What do you mean I didn't take the fruit? Why do I got to deal with these issues? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul writes it like this, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin so death spread to all men because all have sinned so what is he saying because Adam sinned all are dead spiritually they may live physically they may enjoy life they may have lots of material things but they're dead that's the condition and as we've been talking about we've named this series made alive because all are dead and need to be made alive if there's any hope for us to be had in this life and we claim, you know, not guilty. I didn't do this. Why should I have to pay for someone else's sin? And here's what I want to say to that. You're not, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Your, your, your disobedience comes from your nature, not from just your actions. Your actions are just a manifestation of what your nature actually is. And this is how all of us are born. And while we need to be made Alive now, that disobedience that severed us uh, morally from God—the fact that we we can't trust Him anymore, that He can't be trusted in our minds—it led to a sway of our morality, right? But it also led to an alienation relationally. Let's go on to look at Genesis chapter three, verses twenty-two through twenty-four. Now. This is where Adam and Eve, the evidence of their disobedience kind of comes to a head. Now, this is one of those passages that I'm not, I wasn't really that familiar with until this week. And maybe you're not uh, either, but this is what happens after God gives the consequences, what He ultimately does with Adam and Eve. Listen to this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work from the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this couple is expelled from the garden, meaning expelled from the presence of God. This This is heaven in a sense, right? They're in God's perfect presence. They walk with him in the cool of the day. And all of a sudden, they are expelled from his presence. They are, they are taken out of his perfect presence, and they cannot come back. They are alienated and estranged from being in the perfect presence of God their Father. Now, my question is, is, why did he do that? As I began to read this and study this, what I began to see is that it was actually one of the most gracious things that God could ever do to send them out of the garden. Why? Because if they were to touch the tree of life in that moment in their sin, it would be like living in hell forever, separate from God's presence. And so he disbands them. He sends them out of the garden. And when he does it, he clothes them. He clothes them. He kills a couple of animals and he clothes them as they go because they're naked and shameful and they're They're sent out from the garden, and it's a picture, church, of the grace of God that will manifest itself through the pages of Scripture, all the pages of Scripture. They will have to be clothed by the sacrifice of another. They are banished from the garden, and they are orphaned children of God. So let's sit in that for a moment. So much of our lives is affected by what I've just described in Genesis chapter 3. The fact that that our moral compass is broken because we think we can't trust God. And the fact that our relationship with God is broken. Jesus' church comes to redeem both of them, but we have a very difficult time living in the redemption that that he's actually done that. So whether you, you, you follow Jesus or not, your enemy is active and he accuses you. And do you you ever wonder why you know in your head, man? I'm forgiven, and I know that, and I'm a son of God, I'm a daughter of God. I, you know, Jesus' perfect sacrifice has 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 spoken for me, but somehow in your bones you can't believe it. And it's typically in your worst moments that you can't believe it. Do you ever wonder why that is? Well, Watchman Nee, who was a Chinese church planter in the late 1800s, uh, said it like this. He said, "Satan has another way to attack the believer." who diligently follows the guidance of the intuition and spirit here's what he does he impersonates the believers conscience to accuse him Did you catch that he impersonates the believers conscience to accuse him so what does that mean your conscience is what it's a gift given to you to guide your life by God And what he, the book of Hebrews says is that when Jesus comes into our lives and makes us alive he cleanses our conscience and our conscience is this kind of voice and guiding kind of entity in our hearts and lives that leads us on the right path. And when it is cleansed by the blood of Jesus and filled with the words of Jesus, it guides us in life. This is why we don't have to worry if we're going the right way or the wrong way if we're following Jesus. We're in His Word and we're in prayer. Is that Our conscience guides us. It's kind of a manifestation of the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. He says, but there's this impersonator that comes. And he comes and he, he wants to mimic the the conscience that God has given you and cleansed. And it's to impersonate these false voices, just like he did in Adam and Eve, that you can't trust God and that that you really can't be forgiven and you're not really a son or a daughter of God. I mean, think about all of these types of impersonating voices that we hear. No one will love you for what you've done. You're banished from God's presence because of what you've done. If only all these people really knew who you were. You're such a hypocrite. All these voices that we hear inside of us, where do they come from? Do they come from the Spirit? We can know that the difference in the two is that the Holy Spirit always leads us to the blood of Jesus. The enemy always leads us to ourselves. It's just what he does. He leads us to trust and rely on ourselves and our own instincts. The Holy Spirit convicts us And he leads us to the blood of Jesus, and it reminds us that it is true. It is finished. We are forgiven. That's how you know the difference. So how do we begin to live in the midst of those accusations with faith? Let's look at the remedies, the second point I want to make. The remedy is this, is that Jesus comes, and he deals with our legal and moral issues, but he also deals with our family issues. And we receive acquittal and adoption through the work of Jesus, So Revelation chapter 12, 10 describes this idea of how Jesus comes to acquit us. He says this um, in in his writing here, in John's writing. He says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You ever felt that before? You ever felt the accusations of the enemy day and night that you're not enough, that you can't trust God, if only people knew who you were? Do you ever feel that? Where does it come from? It doesn't come from God. God has sent His Son Jesus to throw down the tormenting accuser who absolutely seeks to destroy our lives and our hearts. And this is what the power of the gospel does. The work of Jesus and our redemption makes us alive. We're not ignorant of the schemes anymore. We see that the blood of Jesus has forgiven us. That, that because of what he's done, that we're, that we're free and we're forgiven and we're back in the family. Listen to this idea of what justification is from, from Romans chapter 5. This, this acquittal that, that we're talking about. So, so we look at Jesus' life and we see, okay, he's the only one who's ever fully obeyed. And he's the only one that's ever died as a perfect person for something that he didn't do. Now, now, why did he do that? As I begin to look at the sacrifice of Jesus, I begin to see that, it, that it's the Father's plan, but also he is, he is in, in, his, in his person the wrath of God against you and I because of what we've done, the banishing power and presence of God, where he placed those angels there to keep us from his presence so that we wouldn't live reverence in, that is what is being poured out on Jesus. And for you and I, you know, I think we look at it and we're like, oh man, poor Jesus, why do you have to do that? But, but I'm beginning to look at the cross like this. No, Jesus, thank you for staying on the cross, because I needed all of God's wrath of, against sin to be poured out on Jesus. Because if not, I can't be secure in what you've done for me today. I'm always wondering, is the, is the hammer going to drop? Is the knife going to drop when I mess it up again? And what Jesus has done is he has justified us. Listen to Romans chapter 5, 15 and 16. That the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, right? We see that in Genesis 3. Condemned, sentenced to life without God. That's what it felt like, right? But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So, you know, we hate this idea of, hey, why am I guilty even though Adam sinned and I didn't? We we hate that idea. But let me tell you what idea we love We love the idea that because Jesus is perfect and he lived a righteous life and died a sinner's death, that we get all the credit for that. We love that idea, right? It's this theological term called triple imputation, if you're taking notes, right? You know, that that our sin, that Adam's sin would be imputed to us. That our sin would be imputed to Christ, and that's when he goes to the cross. But here's the beauty of it that we miss a lot of times. That the perfect righteousness of Jesus that was displayed as he came through death and resurrected is imputed to us. So justification means this. My, uh, one of my Bible teachers when I was in high school said it like this. He said, it's like just as if I'd never sinned before. And that's, that's part one of justification, right? So when God sees you, he sees you just as if you had never sinned before. All you can see is your sin, but all he can see is Christ's righteousness on you. But it's not only that. It's just as if you had always obeyed the whole law. Doesn't that change things? Not, not only does Jesus forgive you, but he also cr- credits your account. Think about it like this. Let's just say, I don't have my ATM card on me, but let's just say I'm going to an ATM right now, all right? And I'm coming up and I'm typing in my pen, one, two, three, four. I'm just kidding. Some of you probably have that pen. I'm just kidding. You, you better not. Um, you, you're typing in your pen, and you're knowing, you know, you know you're going to the bank. You, you know, man, I have blown it this, this month. You know, my expenses are way out. Of, there's going to be a ton of overdraft fees, and you're, you're just seeing how bad it is as you check the balance, right? And what you see is that your account is nothing like what you expected it to be, that, that there's so many zeros on the ends of the numbers in your account, that the screen cannot contain them all. And so you do what any person would do you withdraw max, right? Max, max, max. <laughs> and then the next day, you spend it all like a good American. The next day, you come back. And you're thinking that was too good to be true. So you, you check the balance, and all of a sudden, you see that the balance is filled again. And so you withdraw max. (laughs) That's every day living in the grace of God. That's what it's like. Not only has He forgiven you for your sin, but He has filled your account. He has credited it to full. That's what it means to be justified. But many of us, we live like God's grace is a cheap payday loan. You know what I mean? You know what a payday loan is? A payday loan is when you go, you can't make ends meet, and so you take out a high-interest loan for $400 that you're going to pay $1,600 for over the course of a year because you needed the money in that moment. We live like God is counting this ridiculous interest against us every time we mess it up. We treat God's grace like it's a cheap payday loan, and that's not what it is because the work of Jesus on your behalf is that good, and the wrath of God poured out against sin was that strong. We needed Jesus to finish it on the cross, and he did it. So because of that, church, we are justified. Just as if you'd never sinned, just as if you'd always obeyed. We are right with God. Now, if you're not in Jesus, you're not right with God. But there's a way through faith that this work of Jesus can be applied to your life. Secondly, we see that, you know, with these legal issues come family issues. Jesus handles those as well. We've been banished from the presence of God. Now, Jesus handles this idea of a restored relationship. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Galatians chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 3 through 7 just quickly here. Galatians chapter 4, 3 says this, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This is a fancy way by saying, of saying that we were slaves to sin. You know, then God gives the law and his grace to show how much we are slaves to sin, right? And then we, we sacrifice. There's the Levitical sacrificial system that, that is kind of a placeholder for forgiveness until Jesus comes. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Now here's why Jesus had to come in the flesh. He had to be born under the law. Why? Because if he was born above the law, that does us no good. If he's not born like me, if he's not fully human, it does you and me no good. His perfect righteousness has no benefit for us. But he's born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We said that we're all orphaned sinners who are are on this... This, me- this never-ending meandering throughout the world trying to figure out life. And the one thing that keeps ringing true in our mind is that I'm just away from the Father. That my family's so broken and I just can't sense God's presence in my life. Jesus handles that. And because you are sons, he says, God sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father. We couldn't utter that without God putting that in us. Did you sense that? He puts his spirit into us. He regenerates us. And it cries out, Abba Father, it cries out, Daddy, save me. I've gotten myself into a mess. Daddy, save me. And so you are no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Church, this is one of the most significant passages. This in Romans chapter 8, which also talks about this in a similar fashion, is one of the most significant passages in my life. Um, I lived at least 10 years of my life as a Christian, um, as as an orphaned Christian, meaning that the benefits of adoption were mine to hold on to, but I just didn't have the faith to believe that they could be true about a person like me. The accusations of the enemy were so strong that the truths of adoption didn't feel like they were being applied to my heart. I was never settled in grace, and I rarely experienced the rest and delight of God. That's what it feels like to be an orphan. You're just always looking over your shoulder, just waiting for, just waiting for the knife to drop. You just never settled in grace. And when I didn't have anything to show for my salvation, I didn't feel like a son. So it was really all up to, to my performance. When my report card didn't look good in the faith, I couldn't let God love me. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you live like an orphan even though God has declared that you're a son through faith, that you're a daughter through faith. Here's what Galatians says, that God sent his son to be born under the law so that he could come to where we were to redeem us. This is why Jesus obeys the law perfectly. He stands in our place and he says, listen, I got this. And we, through faith, receive the, bene- the, the benefits of a perfect obedience, which is a perfect relationship with the Father in heaven. He comes, and then he goes, we, we read in, in the book of Hebrews and other places that, that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven because we need him interceding for us. But the issue is we also need him living inside of us, right? We also need his Spirit guiding us. And so he sends the Holy Spirit, and what is the language of the Holy Spirit? For you to cry out within your bones, Abba, Father. To be reminded that God loves you and that you are in perfect fellowship with Him from His perspective. That's what the Holy Spirit has come to do, to guarantee you that you are a son and you're a daughter and He's never putting you up for, into an orphanage. He's never putting you out on the street. That you are His. And it's like this. Your relationship isn't like, oh, well, I'm glad you're finally back. It's not how he sees you. It's just as if you'd never left the family. That's how he sees us. That's what it means to be brought back in. He relates to you as he relates to his son, Jesus, perfectly. I was on the phone with my dad a couple of weeks ago, and I share often about my family dynamics because I so much a part of my story. And dad and I were having a great conversation on the phone, which... Usually means about six minutes of talking is it's like pretty good, right? And so we're talking and all of a sudden he was just sharing a story with me and I, I, I usually call him dad and for some reason I call him daddy in that moment. It, it was this moment that kind of caught me off guard and, and I, I was kind of reeling afterwards and not that I'm ashamed to call my dad daddy or anything like that but I think there was just this moment of kind of an intimacy and kinship and relationship that, that really that was the only word that made sense to address my dad with. Sometimes we, we look at God as father and we say, hey, dad, thanks for taking care of me. Thanks for sending me to college. Thanks for filling up my gas tank. What would it look like for you to enter into more of those moments where you just kind of unexpectedly call, call him daddy? To Really believe that, that God loves you and that you're his son or daughter. So we've got this this spirit of orphanship that runs rampant in our hearts and our and our souls, and I just want to I want to quickly just look at the difference in the two, the spirit of Abba Father and the spirit of orphanship. And this is this is through a study that several of our discipleship groups have done called Sonship, and this is just kind of pulled from that. Um, and so I want to read a co- couple of those for you. The orphan. Um, Jesus says when he sends the Holy Spirit in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I think that's a significant term. It's a promise that we can take to the bank. He's coming back for us. That's why he gave us the spirit as a guarantee. Now, places like Romans 8 and Galatians 4 said that he's given us the spirit of sonship that cries out within us, Abba, Father. So let's look at just kind of how those break down uh, together. Can you go on to that next example? May, the orphan feels alone and lacks a vital daily intimacy with God and is full of self-concern. You just can't get your eyes off of yourself. The child of God, on the other hand, has a growing assurance that God is really my loving and heavenly Father. I can take it to the bank, it's true. Let's keep going. The orphan is anxious over felt needs, relationships, money, and health. I'm all alone and nobody cares. I'm not really happy about what's going on in my life right now. The child of God trusts the Father and has a growing confidence that you you sense growing. It's not going to be perfect from day one. It's a growing confidence in his loving care and is being freed up from worry. Just keep going. The other thing I want to say just kind of as 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 an aside right here is this, is that justification and adoption, church, are applied to your life immediately when you come to faith in Jesus. It's it's not something you work up for and eventually you get there. It's something that God does instantaneously because the work of the full magnitude of the work of Jesus is applied to our hearts instantly. Spirit of the orphan lives on a succeed-fail basis, needs to look good and be right, is more performance-oriented. Am I knocking out of the park for you, God? How's my report card looking? But the child of God is one that learns to live in daily conscious partnership. With God, not afraid that God's out to get him. Next, the orphan feels condemned, guilty, and unworthy before God and others. The child of God feels loved, forgiven, and totally accepted because Christ's merit really closed him. And the, the last one I'll share with you is this. And there's there's a full list we can we can find online that are helpful just to, to grab onto. The orphan has little faith and lots of fear. Lots of faith in himself. I've got to fix it. And when you get to a point where you realize that you can't fix it, you don't have any joy because it's all up to you. The child of God, on the other hand, has a daily working trust in God's sovereign plan. Is loving, wise, and best. Believes God is ultimately good. And that was the lie that ultimately took Adam and Eve down. When they begin to doubt the goodness of God. So how do we begin to walk this out, church? How do we begin to implement this in our life? We have to keep coming back to the foundation of our redemption, the foundation of our our salvation. That Jesus has really come to handle the biggest issues that we have in life. Our our, the way that we've been severed from God, that Jesus has come to deal with. And I I just want to I want to remind you of what it looks like to, to to live acquitted and adopted before your Father in heaven. To continue coming back to the blood of Jesus. That if there's a spirit in you that says you're not a son, you're an orphan, that's a lie. Because Jesus died and he he bore the full weight of God's wrath so that you could be a son and a daughter. If if there's this lie that's inside of you that says you're not enough, look at how bad you are, and you believe by faith in, in the work of Jesus, that's a lie. Because that's not how God sees you. The verdict is in and it's finished. We've got to continue to come back to where does this the spirit of what I'm hearing and believing, where is it coming from? And if it doesn't lead you to the blood, forgiveness, and life that Jesus gives us, it's not from God. And we as a church have to constantly be telling the truth to ourselves, but also to those that we share life with. How many times are we so content to let people live in misery without telling them the gospel? Oh, too bad. I'm really sorry about that. What would it look like to say, hey, do you follow Jesus? I mean, you know that you're a perfectly righteous son or daughter in his side, don't you? Because of what he's done. To just remind one another in love about those truths, I think could be very helpful. I want to close just with a quote from John Owen. Um, and may it stir our hearts uh, toward more worship as we head into communion. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, this morning. Thanks for your truths that are compelling to our hearts, that are renewing to our minds. Uh, Lord, I know that, uh, that in this room uh, are those um, you know, who have not yet been made alive. Or that, that 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 see that spirit of orphanship, to see that that spirit of of guilt, and it weighs heavy upon them. Even this morning, Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would come and quicken their hearts and awake them to the new life that can be found in Jesus. Father, for the for the follower of Jesus in the room that that just really struggles to believe that this could ever be true, Lord, would You convince them? Would You convince them with the power of Your Spirit in their hearts? that they would know that they are beloved children of God, made right with God through the work of Jesus, brought back into the family through the blood of Jesus. And would you you stir our hearts more and more toward worship this morning? in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.